Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Previously on the BitCast. Uh, I am Philip. I am known for my adoration of Octopath Traveler. When I heard that they were making another game, I just barged into the call and shouted, Did, Did someone, someone say bravely default? Like, the guy's having a fantasy midlife crisis. It just makes me picture Ulbricht just buying, like, a sports car or something. (laughs) So, Cyrus actually does have a pretty similar appeal. Our friend Austin said that he'd do the Jekyll Jekyll Hyde dance from Arthur. Yes, yes he would. Even Therian's reasoning is basically that someone just drew an L on his forehead and told him they'd only erase it if he did their work for them. And then after he finished, they said, hey now, you're an all-star. Yeah, Ophelia's ending is just, again, really freaking cute. What, what if we read the credits of the game and he's actually listed as like one of the like scenario writers or something? Oh, th- that, that would be brilliant. But Primrose's story isn't important enough to merit that. Maybe if you did like the K. Rule credits. You know what? That. You even have that fake-out fight with him. What if they just did oh, that? Did you? <laughs> okay, I think you've been waiting for this. Okay, and then we have my son, Alfin. And now, the stunning conclusion. Uh, I feel like I'm just going to stammer and not know what to say, though. Let me think. <laughs> like, like like you're a, a like, blushing schoolboy meeting his crush uh, for the first time? T- yes. A- a- absolutely. Because um, I don't really have in my head quite so much why I like that one. It just kind of gets me. He- he's a lot like Ophelia in that he's you know really nice and wholesome yeah. to everyone he meets. He's another character that I respect for just being really nice. And uh, so both Ophelia and Alfin just kind of get a bonus there, partially because it's endearing, and partially because I was thinking about, like, just what makes a nice character, and I was thinking, just like, oh, probably the need for approval or something cynical like that. But then these two just come along, and they're nice because in their backstories, someone else was nice to them. The golden rule. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a really optimistic and endearing take that I can really appreciate for both of them. Alfin's case being that he wants to be an apothecary because when he was a kiddo, an apothecary saved him. Yeah, it's really, really tonal difference from Primrose's chapter. <laughs> yes, and... Primrose was treated like garbage, and so she treats everyone like garbage. Well, she treats bad well, people like garbage. Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, a, a lot of whiplash in this game, which I think most people have been really receptive mm-hmm. towards, actually. Oh, the different tones between all the stories? Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about that a little at the end, I think. Well, I, I, I was just an aside. Yeah. Oh, no, you're right. Let's, uh, let's distract uh, ourselves uh, to that, talk that, about that, tattoos I, instead. I, 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 I... <laughs> Well, so I would talk a lot about that, so I don't want to get sidetracked from my boy, Alfin. Um, but with his backstory, they just make it really clear how important being an apothecary is to him. And so it's just really easy to buy into it when he succeeds and feels really happy about it. Yeah. yeah. Like, I felt for him when he just freaking saves these kids' lives and is just so happy with himself that he cries in front of them and then turns around because he doesn't want them to see it. Because he's a loser! Because he's a loser. I love him. I 
remember having this talk with you and one of our other friends where I wasn't I wasn't entirely thrilled with his first two chapters, both kind of relying on the sick children card. Yeah, that is a little cheap. I, I know there are technically other circumstances surrounding them both times, but just his first chapter and his second chapter, the the pressing threat is, oh no, a little girl's dying. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more of a fault in his first chapter. Yeah. The fact that they do it twice is a bigger fault, but I think if they change one, it should have been the first, because there's just no reason to really have it be a little girl there. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. Then there's something with his second half of the story. I liked Where it. it. Oh, I liked oh it. yeah. But and well, oh, go ahead. I feel like it's most noticeable with Alfin's story, but it, it kind of exists in all of them to an extent. But well, actually not all of them, but it, it's very noticeable in Alfin's story where it feels like two unrelated stories. Okay. The first half and the second half are just kind of not as well connected, but the first two chapters are more connected with each other, and the third and fourth are more connected with each other. I can sort of see that, but I don't really agree, since I think it just sets up an important arc for him. I mean, it, I... it works, I just I just mm-hmm. couldn't help but notice it, is what I'm saying. Um, so, pretty frequently in the game... There'll be a structure where the first chapter introduces the character, the second shows them just in their natural environment and succeeding, and then the third throws some twist, and the fourth they fix it. I guess so. I mean... Like, happens to Therion, happens to Ophelia, happens to Alfin, um, kind of happens to Ulbrich. Yeah, I, I, I kind of see it. It, it. it did pick up with the last two... It was like, the first two mm-hmm. chapters were alright, they were fun, but I was more interested in, you know, the third and fourth chapters. Right, and so, it is my favorite because it actually kind of gets into some complex morality with him just having the question of, is it worth it to save bad people? And that's actually pretty compelling, whereas everything else in the game, the morality is pretty black and white, like a black horse and a white horse, for instance. Always the horses. <laughs> just an example. Whereas Alfin is just dealing with something where there really is no right answer. And so his right answer is just to say, screw it, and do what he thinks is right. Yeah. And that's saving people. That, that's kind of character development 101 there, is you present them with something that challenges everything they know, they either change from it or they double down on what they've said in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so I think they just have a really nice continuous arc there where they introduce him in the first chapter, show what he's passionate about. The second they show him succeeding and being passionate about it so that you kind of get more attached to him, then the third they kick him down and in the fourth he rises up so that you can find that very admirable, which I did. Yeah, yeah. The the mood of his fourth chapter was very palpable. Oh, yes. I love the music in that town, where it's just... It's like, jeez! Just, just this wistful whistle. Yeah, I, I told you as I was playing it, but like it started with him on a bridge. He was just wistfully mm-hmm. looking out, and I was like, I think, oh, I, yeah. I think Alfin's chapter starts off with a music video. 
<laughs> yeah, and I half expected one of the angsty songs from the Donkey Kong cartoon to play. Oh my god. Oh, that would simultaneously ruin and perfect everything. <laughs> it always goes back to monkeys with me. They really are my version of the horse. Oh yeah. Let's see. I wish Hanet had a boss that was a monkey. Then we'd be able to end on a good note. You notice that monkeying around and horsing around are the same thing? Oh my god. We're perfect for each other after all. All, all these all these animal asides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Alfin... Yeah, Alfin's really good chapter. He didn't leave as much of an impact on me as he did for you, clearly, but... Mm-hmm. He really did. Like, him and Ulbrich were kind of the ones where I was like, alright, at first. But then by the end, I was like, okay, yeah, I can get on board with this. I think I just like characters who just throw reason to the side and do what it is that they think is the good thing to do. And Alfin is just literally that. It can be an admirable trait, and except mm-hmm. for except for when it's not. Except for when it's on villains, then it's on... Ooh. There's nothing else to say about Alfin. Oh, what could there be? Uh, Miguel is one of the best villains in the game, so that helps. Uh, I I saved him for the end of Chapter 3, so I was kind of spared the difficulty a lot of people had for him. Let's see. And then Ogin is the actual best villain in the game, despite you not fighting him. He's more of an antagonist than a villain, I'd say. Uh, Yeah, he's an antagonist, that's correct. And so he's a nice counterpoint as being someone just who, like, he just actually has rational feelings and reasons for what he does, and just just gives Alfin an actual problem to deal with, whereas everyone else just kind of hits whatever is in front of them. His presence and impact do make me feel better about Alfin's final boss, because otherwise Mm -hmm. his final boss is kind of out of nowhere, and I didn't care for it. Yeah, so Alfin kind of speaks to one of the weaknesses of the game structure, where some people's stories just don't lend themselves to dungeon crawling. Yeah. Which is a perfect segue into Tressa. <laughs> Spoilers, her story does not suit itself to dungeon crawling. Uh, not not really. It kind of does in like the first half, but then they kind of force it more in the second half the first one it's a little bit contrived there's no real reason for her to have to fight pirates well i mean pirate Um, she lives in a seaside town of course there's gonna be pirates she lives in a seaside town it just doesn't really suit her adventure to fight pirates i guess she's she's protecting the merchants of her town because she respects merchantry i guess that works um it kind of gives her the idea to leave because Mm -hmm. you know that too like it makes logical sense all of her fights make logical sense except kind of the fourth one yeah but uh anyway they don't really fit anyway people Um, who've listened to the show before know that tressa was the character i started with mm -hmm. loser jealous Weeb. I didn't pick the edgelord, at least. (laughs) Yeah, guilty as charged. I started with her story, and I've said that I kind of, you know, relate to her story in two fronts. One of them was I really wanted to see what would happen in this game world, so I, I, you know, I liked Mm -hmm. her quest to see what would happen in the game world. 
Oh, yeah. And then the other thing is that, you know, at first you think her and Cyrus are both kind of the lighthearted stories of the bunch, but then Cyrus walks in on a blood basement. <laughs> so that just kind of leaves Tressa as the only one. Uh, yeah, she's pretty much alone, yeah. Um, yeah, I do think Tressa is, like, the optimal protagonist for the game. Partially because she's just different from the rest, and also because of what you said. Yeah, I think she suits the, you know, the exploration aspect a lot. She just wants to see everything the world has to offer, and part of what the game is about is all of the various things the world has to offer, and so she just suits the game best. On top of being, in terms of functions, one of the more versatile characters. Yeah, she's a pretty convenient protagonist to have, I would think. The other way that I kind of relate to her was that, as I was saying a minute ago, that she didn't have as much drama or stakes, is mm-hmm. I-, I couldn't help but notice a lot with all the people I connect with that I seem to have a lot less drama in my life for one <laughs> reason or another. So Fair. so I can kind of relate to Tressa's lack of drama relative to everyone else. Mm-hmm. As, as things went on, I kind of grew closer to Tressa. Also, I, ju- I just really liked making extra money. Just... Oh, yeah. I think there's two major things that speak to me about Tressa, although the second one is secretly three things, so we'll be here a while. Oh, but I forgot what the first was. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'll just hop straight to the second, which is actually three. So I think there's three sort of main themes going on with her chapter. Those being one, like we talked about, just traveling and seeing the world, which is showing a lot. Yeah. Um, one being just like a good merchant, and instead of doing it for money, just being someone who connects people with the products that they want. Yeah, very admirable. Um, she does. Yeah, like everyone in this game is a good kiddo, but Tressa, Tressa is a good freaking kiddo. Yeah. Um. Let's see, and the third. Gosh, I was really treasure. good at these. Um, not treasure. Which sounds very yeah. similar to Tressa. Yes, I love that. Um, I'm blanking on the third, too. Um, but so I think... Oh, wait, no, the third was Sentimental Value, where at the start of the story, she is able to choose from any of these incredibly valuable treasures, and then she ends up taking the old notebook. And then that's important to her. And likewise with Captain Leon, whose greatest treasure is a ship, not because it's valuable, but because it's a relic from an old friend. And so with these three themes, sentimental value, traveling, and being a good merchant, I think the ending is pretty freaking fantastic at just tying all three of those together. It really Mm. was the friends we made along the way. It, It really was. So when Tressa ends up winning the Merchant's Fair by selling someone just a crummy old notebook which doesn't have any real value it only has sentimental value but it represents traveling which is one of the others and she wins because she gives it to someone who doesn't want something valuable what they really need is that notebook see the whole thing with how noah isn't able to travel herself and so being able to read a record of someone else's travels is actually very valuable, specifically to her. It's a lot like Cyrus in that it's the value of passing things forward to new people. Mm -hmm. And so I actually wasn't really big on Tressa's story up until the fourth chapter, 
but it just tied so many things together at the same time in such an endearing way that I just, like, immediately fell in love. I, th- I think her story, like like I said, I started with her, so I felt obligated to finish with her. Mm-hmm. And it was just a really good way to cap off the whole game. And I, I kind of liked the crescendo aspect to it, where, like, Ulbricht's final chapter, because, you know, he was second <laughs> to last, it was, you know, probably the end of the intensity of the game, which meant that Tressa's mm-hmm. final chapter could be kind of like a slow... Okay, let's just cool down a bit before we say goodbye, even if there is a boss fight. Yeah, a boss fight that ruins the pacing, but whatever. Mm. Um, And that reminds me of the other thing I was going to say, which is just that Tressa is a really good addition to the game as a whole. Because one of kind of the points of it is that everyone is doing all of these different things, but they always have some motivation that makes them really, really care about what it is they're doing. And so having a character who's just enjoying life and doesn't really care about something very, like, objectively important, but just has something that's personally important to her, I think that goes a long way in establishing that part of the game. I would agree with that. I, I just like to throw out there that a lot of people give flack to her fourth chapter. I liked it a lot. I- I'd really direct it to the third chapter. I just, I understand what they were trying to mm-hmm. do with it, but it just it felt like it was more about Captain Leon than it was about Tressa herself, and mm-hmm. and the fact that it was in the tournament town. Like I know they already used that for Ulbricht's chapter, yeah. but it just feels like it just happens to be there for no good reason. It could have been in any town. Yeah, that town was made for Ulbricht, and then they just put in Tressa as a leftover. That's pretty obvious. Yeah, because towards the middle of the game, everyone starts doubling up on which towns they have to visit. And you can generally tell, like, okay, this one was made for this guy. Yeah. This other one could have gone anywhere, but this one was made for this guy. Like, Therian and Primrose share a town that was literally the town that Primrose grew up in before she went and ended up being a dancer. Therian's just there as a guest. Yeah. I notice it's really notable with Cyrus because all of his dungeons are just, like, doorways off to the corner of the town hitbox. Yeah, that's true. But neither of his really had to be in that town. Well, I meant in, like, all of his chapters, that was how he gets to his dungeons. Pretty much, yeah, that too. It just kind of makes me think that he's just the guy who's going to go into your crawlspace one day and you can't stop him. (laughs) Ah, good old Cyrus. Okay, I think that says everything about Tressa. Yeah. That leaves Hanit. Ah, Hanit. Somebody has to be the worst. Oh, okay, I guess I guess we both kind of... Well, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's more that, process of elimination su- than really anything. Yeah, so, like, I love the other seven, I just like Hanit. That's how it goes. Okay, I, I don't know if I love all the others, but... Yeah, Hanit's just uh, kind maybe, of... Maybe Therion's dropped a bit, but... Hana is just kind of... Like, by default, she... Because like, someone had to be the eighth. If you put them in order... Let's see. So, uh, the main draw I got from Hanit's story didn't quite have much to do with Hanit or her character arc. And was more so just that the game is just trying to build up the fight with Red Eye. And it's really good at that. Just establishes him as this big monster that you apparently have to send the master to fight then you find out the master lost and now it's your responsibility 
And then the third chapter doesn't really have a whole lot to do with it. No. Well, you fight a dragon, and then they say, oh yeah, you fought a dragon? Well, this thing's going to be stronger than that, so good luck, kid. Well, it's also getting the ingredients, which, spoiler alert, you never use. Which you never use. We'll get to that. And then in the fourth chapter, like, there's this whole town that's being terrorized by this monster, and you're the only one who can stop it because you're this awesome hero. And that feels great. And then you fight the guy, and he's easy. Uh, It kills me. He wasn't easy for me, but... He, he, he was easy for me. Okay. How far were you into Chapter 4 when you fought him? He was my first one, buddy. Oh, no! <laughs> he was still easy. Uh, he wasn't easy for me, but I, I wouldn't say he was hard. But I, I noticed while you were summarizing all this, Hunnit's story is basically a medieval kung fu movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> Never mind, this one's the best. <laughs> It's like, Sensei, don't leave me. I must. I must go defeat the evil Kung Fu Master. Oops, I lost. Your turn. But I do need to rant about Red Eye a bit more. So they hype up him being able to turn people to stone. And that's how he defeated your master. That's why you have to go get the ingredients in the third chapter. And then they made a smart move by making it something that he uses in his boss fight. And you actually use the ingredients to cure the petrification. Problem being, he has only a random chance of using it. And a shocking number of people who I've talked to never saw him use it. Because the chance is so low. Well, I think we can see why they might have made it so low if we really think about it. They only give you ten of those potions, so they don't want him spamming it. And you have up to four characters in battle, so if he just uses it on everyone but Hanit twice, that's already six of your potions gone, and you only have ten. On the other hand, like, these boss fights don't take that long. Well, for you. I don't know, I mean, when I say that long, I mean, like, they still probably took me maybe 20 minutes a pop, but, like... I don't know if there's any boss I fought that even, like, used a single move ten times. Yeah. Like, except for the ones that got, like, four turns. But I think they were just trying to play it safe, and they kind of went too far in the other direction. They, they went too far. And so it feels like the whole story is building up to this awesome fight, and it just doesn't really deliver. I mean, I, I still kind of felt it, because... First of all, that boss was really freaky. I was expecting a giant oh, wolf. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, it is a fantastic design, that's for sure. Like, it's really freaky, and the fact that its its weakness chart is constantly shifting, even when it's stunned, just kind of shows, like, how unstable it's supposed to be, and the mu- oh, yeah. the music playing the whole time, it just, like, it, it kind of supplemented oh, yeah. the fact that the boss I... wasn't very difficult. Yeah, and it being my first, it still felt really cool, because it was the first time I got the Chapter 4 boss theme, so that was nice. I thought you started with Therion's. Uh, no, I did his second. I went in... Oh, how do you pronounce it? I I went in reverse Octopath order. Okay, thank you for not trying to... No, don't, don't! Hatapotko, I think? No! That meant you ended with Ophelia's chapter, didn't you? Or... Yes, I did, and it was very sweet, except I had trouble enjoying it because I had a headache at the time. <laughs> but then I watched that scene again, and it, I still loved it. It would be very it, easy so for me okay. to just blame that on the game for some reason. Mm, I mean, her final boss is the hardest one, so maybe. 
You know, that was the second one I did. It didn't give me that much trouble. Hmm. It was the last one I did, and it gave me more trouble than any of the others. Go figure. Alphans was the one that gave me the most trouble, and I think that's just because I was underprepared for it. But uh, going back to Hanit's story... Okay. Um, I feel like... So what it what it doesn't have in Red Eye... Oh, go ahead. Well, well now I want to know what you were going to say. Um, we're so organized. Oh, yeah. We, we, we have this, like bulleted list that I don't get to see and everything. Um, <laughs> don't worry, it's not actually that conclusive. Okay. Um, Hanit is fairly endearing. Um, her general trying to be serious attitude and then like everyone else kind of getting on her case about it and trying to get her to be a little more loose. That's kind of fun. I think I kind of missed um, that with her. Um, it's mainly with her master, because her master is just this huge goofball, and she's super straight-laced. Um, it mainly comes into play in the flashback before you fight the dragon, where she's, like, six years old, and she's still complaining at him for being silly. Yeah, she sounds exactly the same. <laughs> Mini Haunted is, like, the best thing in the entire story. It's, like, exactly the same stoic character. Oh, uh, I... I gotta mention this now that I remember it, but it's like when they do the flashbacks and everyone's a child, they keep the same head as their regular sprite. I know! And I love it! So when I saw Mini Darius for the first time, <laughs> it just looked really weird. And what's more, they didn't bother to change Sean Chiplock's voice at all. They, they kept the same voice he uses for adult Darius. So there's this little guy going, Hello there, Thariel! And it's just like, Whoa, okay! <laughs> Who's been feeding you the smokes? I did not notice that, but that's really funny. Oh yeah, that's in like Therion's first chapter. And honestly, I think the whole mini Hanat scene is also the best scene in that chapter. Partially because it's adorable, but partially because before the flashback ends, it starts playing the lead into the boss theme. Oh, I'd have to watch that again. Oh yeah, it's really cool. Just also, just like you're gonna fight the master in the flashback. Go. <laughs> No, no, no. So, I feel like in every fantasy game, you get your first dragon button. Hmm. Like, the first dragon the player fights is going to feel, like, twice as cool. It just, like, has this bonus modifier on how cool the fight already is. So, to make your game cooler, you need to put a lot into your first dragon fight. And that being the only dragon in the game, I think they go on it pretty well. I feel like there were... There was some dragon-looking monsters. Dragon? I don't think there's another oh, dragon. Not a boss, but like encounters. Uh, well, no, no, no. Like muck dragons don't count. Oh, okay. It has to be a dragon boss. Well, okay. Well, when you put it like that, I guess so. Well, now I'm just thinking about if if Bowser counts as a dragon. No. And Bowser did not count as a dragon. Mario didn't fight a dragon until Odyssey, and then. Actually, no. He fought a dragon in. Some of the galaxy oh, games, some of the paper oh, games. Oh yeah, oh well, that that was a stupid dragon. I like the Dark Souls dragon. Well, well, That's what I'm gonna call. Oh, it. I need. We need to hunt it to fight that thing. Ah, oh, she would win because it's easy, just like all of her bosses. Ew. Oh, you kind of cut out for me there. So I hope when the episode airs. You know that's still audible, hmm. so we don't miss that joke. I said if she fought. The Dark Souls dragon, she would win because it was easy, just like all of her bosses. Heyo. 
Well, now I'm thinking, what if that didn't get cut out? Now I just keep that in anyway, just make you explain the joke again like a jerk. You can splice it. Uh, You can just cut it out. I could, but I didn't. Anyway, I I think the fact that we're we're getting really sidetracked from Han, it just kind of suggests that there isn't a whole lot to say about her. Um, well, so I once posted a big analysis of this game to Reddit, and one of the most negative comments I got uh, mostly criticized me for not really analyzing Hanet's story at all, saying that it was about, like, her growth as a hunter and not about cool boss fights. Apparently there's something there, and I just didn't see it. Well, I'll be honest, I I didn't really pick up on that coming-of-age aspect either. It's kind of there with how she's just an apprentice and then like, wins against the big bad monster. Uh, they also mentioned how she was learning to buy into her master's theatrics. And I do like how there's a brief reference to it in her ending monologue. Though I don't remember exactly what it is. I just remember like... Yeah. I think it's about how she's going to tell the story a little more embellished right. each time. Yeah, she she criticizes her master for never telling any story the same way twice, and then she says that the story that she had in this game she'll never tell the same way twice, and that's really cute. I can dig it, but there's just there's just not a whole lot there. It was a little too nuanced, so it, I didn't really notice it when I was playing through it. I had to go back and say, "Oh, okay, I can see it now." I I don't know, like. I pick up on this whole nonsense with Primrose being like this meta narrative about persevering against cliche stories, and then Hanet, I just don't see anything. Maybe we're distracted by her dialect. I got past it really easily. I get people complaining about it, but it was just a pure neutral for me. I, I thought it was funny. Fair enough. I, I do feel like. This isn't offense to Cindy Robinson. Like she's she's proven to be a good actress before, but I just think the way they directed her was that she was more focused on the dialect than actually being in character. I mean, it helps that the whole point of her is that she's very straight laced and stuff. But it just feels like kind of a. It's like when you're working too hard on doing a silly voice that you don't really know what you're saying with the voice. You're just doing the voice. Yeah. And that probably didn't help for a lot of people yeah okay this is going on a lot longer than i planned it to i dude you've seen how much i write about this game i can at least talk about it for a quarter of that much (laughs) it might be a good idea if i split this episode up at some point okay i'll I'll think about it i did it um fortunately when you talk about all of the characters there's really not a whole lot of the game left unless you want to hear me say that the final boss stuff is okay? Yeah, I think since I didn't touch okay. on it... Oh, okay. Um, I didn't touch on it during any of the other episodes, but you did play through that travesty. So, so, it's not a travesty. The game basically just completely reverses its appeal. It starts having really good gameplay sometimes, um, and just kind of drops the story. Which, given that this is a game I appreciated for the story, it's like... Me. Um, basically, it solves my problem where the gameplay is too easy by having these just really hard super bosses. So that was really enjoyable for me, aside from the final boss not having enough checkpoints. 
yeah, I think that's the big thing. Lack of checkpoints making for difficulty, that's that, that really turns me off because I don't equate time spent with challenge. Yeah. And it is honestly the hardest boss in the game otherwise, which just makes it more dastardly. <laughs> and so the story content, I... It starts focusing on everything about the story that I didn't really care about. That being that the only story info you're given is just some lore dumps about how all of the stories connect. Yeah, but... so maybe we should kind of give some context. After you beat all eight of the stories, you kind of got to do a few other stories, like one of them involving the collapsed traveler you find outside your starter's town. And then you have to go to this other dungeon. And you find, you know, what what he said, the lore about all eight of those stories, details that interconnect with each other, and you have to fight ghost versions of some of their bosses. And then you fight the super final mega nightmare boss. Dark God. Yeah. Because it's an RPG. You can't have an RPG without fighting a god. Ooh, I should complain about that in a moment. Uh, and so you fight the Dark God, and then you get a really short ending. But the first thing I will complain about is that even though the appeal of this game is its characters, not a one of them says a word. Yeah, I was really surprised by that when I watched the footage, and I admit that they, I didn't play it. Yeah, they just all shut up, and it just feels so tacked on and low effort at that point, especially because it drops what I consider the main appeal of the entire rest of the game. Yeah, it's kind of like an obligation at that point, mm -hmm. that entire... It's it's just a game about its characters that suddenly makes them faceless mooks. Like, the fact that there was really not a whole lot at stake on the world at large, except maybe Ophelia's story near the end... I liked that. Okay, we, we we can kind of rest. We don't have to worry about the apocalypse tomorrow. Now suddenly we do. It's like, oh, okay. And that's what I was going to complain about next, actually. I really, really like how most of this game doesn't have very high stakes. It's about what's important to each character and how there aren't these huge consequences at the to the world at large, but everyone is just really distinctly invested in whatever potentially meaningless thing that they're doing. And it's just kind of inspiring in that sense. And so to just zoom out and have them fight a dark god trying to destroy the world just doesn't really have that personal element. Forget why we're why we like the game in the first place, at least for us. Mm -hmm. I gotta say though, this makes Cyrus pretty much the quintessential RPG protagonist because he starts off small. He goes after that missing library <laughs> book. Now he's fighting a dark god. That's that's pretty pretty RPG hero. Mm, let's see, they all kind of suit it, except Tressa. What's Tressa doing here? Why is Tressa fighting Satan? She just wants to help out. I love her. She's going to write about it in her new journal. Oh, gosh, she is. What a bean. Well, we totally owned Satan today. <laughs> yes. Uh, one thing I do actually like about this whole final boss segment, yeah. other than mechanics, is that it all builds around just this guy that you find outside of the first town that you leave in the game. Just some random schmuck who doesn't seem important at all, turns out being, like, the central character 
of the last act of the game. Uh, kind of a Persona 4 situation there. Vaguely, and I think I've compared it to that before, but here it's used to kind of a different effect. Just with the idea that this game is kind of saying everyone has their own story, everyone has some battle that's important to them, to have the game ultimately revolve around someone who's not even in your party is just pretty neat to me. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but I feel like that's, you know, oh, yeah. the good interpretation of it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I don't care about it a whole lot, but I think it's a nice point to mention. And I think the fact that so many of the villagers have entire backstories that Cyrus and Alfin can find out about them kind of speaks to the idea that everyone having their own stuff going on. It kind of reminds me of a trope I read about static characters. It says, you don't really need to know that the waitress over there is a surviving cancer patient who's trying to break into acting and stuff and blah 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 and i always go back to that when i think about you know side nobody characters having their own lives mm -hmm. and so i always like things that kind of dive into that idea and so i guess that got us into the overarching themes of the game which it does surprisingly have just everyone having their own battle and something important to them and a little bit about traveling I feel like it was a little ham-fisted, not that the game was innocent of this before, but it was a little ham-fisted by saying, you can take any path you want. I, I kind of already figured, but thanks for reminding me, I guess. It's cute, and also it's better than nothing, which is the entire rest of it. Uh, I, I guess. I liked it at any rate. No, I'm just kind of tying the game up. Yeah. Poorly, but doing it. I think that covers most of the character story gameplay stuff. Yep. I... And so I guess I'll just end on what I mostly appreciate about the game. Just kind of supporting that idea that everyone has their own battle and that it's different but still important to them just by having all of these really different stories with different tones and themes and ideas and just kind of mashing them together. I find that really endearing. Yeah, I like that. All right. So now we're going to end it how I normally end it. I'm going to ask you, since I've already talked about it with my own episodes, what are some of the soundtrack selections you might have liked the most? Oh my goodness, I completely forgot that this game has the third best soundtrack in the medium. <laughs> um, let's see. Just, 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 just a few of your favorites. So, before release, as luck would have it, my two favorite character themes were very easily Ophelia's and Alphans. So, like, they just started off ahead of everyone else by default. Uh, those two songs are just really soft and feel-good. Not, like, peppy or anything, but they just feel honest and warm. Yeah. And in that sense, they just really bring me at ease, and I like the two of them a lot. Yeah, that, that careless whisper saxophone for Alfin. Mm-hmm. Let's see, I know we talked a bit about uh, the song that plays in Alfin's fourth chapter. Just that super wistful flute. Just really sets the tone there. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I really like Tress's fourth chapter theme. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just like you walk into the town... And you hear this, oh, how does it start? 
you hear this like trumpet fanfare or something. I think it's another. It's a happy flute. It's a happy flute this time. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's a happy flute, and you just get this this little marching tune just jolly and you walk in and you're like oh this is a tressa chapter all right yeah just after you know alfin's angst fest on the cliff yeah and then the other chapters where you go into the town and it's like yeah like yeah three of the chapters just take place in this horrible place where the entire town is just in tyranny and then you go to Tressa's and... I want to go move over there. <laughs> it just feels so... Let's get away from this horse guy. Yes. And then... Boss themes, I really like all of them. I tend to gravitate toward uh, the, the Chapter 4 boss theme, whose name is blanking me. The battle at Journey's End. Yeah, Battle at Journey's End. Okay, well, hold on. I I never said that I didn't like it as much. I just you liked it less than uh, the other boss themes, though, didn't you? Well, I liked it less than Decisive Battle Two because that's the thing with me is like you know versatility. That one's a lot more versatile, I'll admit. Journey's End that can only be an end game fight, Mm -hmm. so that that kind of loses some versatility to me, but. You know, of the endgame boss themes I've heard, that's probably one of my favorites in recent memory, so it's not like I dislike it at all. Yeah. Um, I still appreciate that it works for every single story. Yeah. Because the, the song is really intense, whether... Oh, what's the most extreme one? It's intense even when you're saving an entire town from an oppressive dis- dictator... But it also plays when you're trying to get your book back from someone who stole it. Give me back my notebook. I I feel like all of the fun things in this game stem from you looking for a book. <laughs> Do where you're going with it. Yeah. And so it just brings everything back to that idea of everyone having something important to them that's driving them forward. It doesn't matter how important it really is if it's important to you. And so everyone still gets this really bombastic fight theme, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I did not think of it like that, but now I can. Yeah. That's what I'm here for, buddy. Alright, anything else? Nope, I have been pretty thorough, and my lips are chapped. Chapped enough to pop, I see. Yes. Alright, well, I think that about does it, then. Alright. I might... We have been at this for, like, without editing, nearly an hour and a half. Yep. Probably gonna cut it into two episodes after all. Okay, I was Philip the Guest. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, played Hat in Time recently. Hat in Time is just a gem. Oh, just a I did, gem. I did a couple episodes about that, you know? I should listen to those. Yes, and so can you, the listener. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm done with you. (laughs) Okay. Just just ended on that. I'm leaving. Bye, everyone. Podcast One, website, app, iTunes. You know the drill. See you next time. Like, comment, and subscribe. Listen to BitCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.